recently I was um, some, doing some research, research and I came across an Ipsos global poll. poll. And out of that poll, it said that, that um, nine, out of, nine out of 10 people want the world to change instead of returning to how it was pre-pandemic. Nine out of 10 people, we want the world to change. We don't, we want it to go back to some idea of normal, but not go back to the status quo. Uh, as, a, as a culture, as a community, uh, three out of four, it said, uh, uh, three out of four people globally want significant change, but not just in the world, they want it in their own life. So we're all in a, in a period in which we're looking for change, not just as a culture, but we know that on some level, we need to change and grow too, individually, as, as, as individual people. Uh, anecdotally, I was in a, in a Barnes & Noble in Seattle while I was visiting family this week, and I was in the religion and spirituality section, and I noticed that the self-help uh, self-improvement section was roughly the equivalent in size, volume, as the religion and spirituality question. I think what that basically tells us is, is that we're all looking for something new. We're all looking for uh, answers to questions, uh, some questions we don't even know that we have, and yet there's no general consensus on where we go about finding that information. Now, probably the last place that you as New Yorkers and me as a New Yorker would seek to look for how to navigate through the troubles of life would be the book of Jonah, right? Why would I turn to what I perceive as a children's story to help me deal with very real uh, adult problems, shall we say? But that's a mistake, I think. You know, the book of Jonah was never considered a children's story. Uh, in fact, uh, public intellectuals today are actually going back, back to it. People like Ta-Nehisi Coates, people like Tim Keller are going back to it, and they're doing commentaries on this book, not because they're so curious about a great big fish, but they're doing it because they recognize that the problems that Jonah was struggling with, we're struggling with today. Problems like, uh, like nationalism, and uh, does this sound okay? Uh, like nationalism and racial superiority, those are the same things that actually got Jonah into deep, deep water, deep, deep trouble. And so it's actually a book for all of us, too. Uh, one of the main themes that we looked at uh, right at the beginning of this series, maybe just three weeks ago, was that when God is doing something new, he's always up to something good. Think about that. When God is up to something new, he's always up to something good. And what we see in the life of Jonah is that he, in this passage, is, is heading in a new direction. But we also see in the community, in the city of Nineveh, that they're taking on a new way of life as well. And so it's challenging for both. They don't know necessarily where this is all going to take them. But there's a deep sense about both of them, that though this is a new journey, because God is at the, at the, at the root of this journey, He's the impetus of this journey, that this journey is going to end in something good. So let's keep that in mind as we go ahead, and I'm going to read from the passage. Uh, you can uh, turn to it in a Bible uh, that you might have on your phone. If you don't have a uh, Bible on your phone, I'd encourage you to download it. Um, and I'm going to read just in chapter 3. And, and, you know, I was looking at this, uh, at the book of Jonah today, or excuse me, this week. And I just thought, wow, this, this book has had such an impact on the world. And this is it. It just covers, it's on two pages. And yet, all that's in it, you could spend a lifetime really discussing. So here's uh, chapter three. This is the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, 
go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, doing a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And as he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, oh, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thanks be to God. Uh, let's consider three things that maybe provide us some insight as modern people from this ancient text let's consider uh that when god is doing something new he's doing he's always up to something good and what we see here is a new jonah we see a new nineveh and it challenges us with the question of the potential for a new us so a new jonah jonah here the jonah that we find is a new jonah he's not the same jonah that we've seen before he's not the same jonah chapter one uh jonah has been swallowed by a great fish Right? He's been uh, vomited up onto the beach. And so for all intents and purposes, Jonah has been res resurrected. Jonah has been brought from death to life. He's a new Jonah. And maybe the primary way that we see that he's had a, uh, not just a, a cataclysmic experience, but he's had a, a transformational experience, a transformative experience, is that he is a, he's a, he's a Jonah with a new humility. And we know he's the Jonah with a new humility because the word of the Lord comes to him again. And this time, instead of rejecting it and fleeing, he receives it and he submits to it. Um, <clears throat> he receives to it and he submits to it. Now, some of us might be saying, I've been tracking with this story. I have been waiting. I am so glad finally right finally he comes to his senses finally he receives and submits to the word of the lord and others some of us are saying what a fool why would he submit to that why would he relinquish any control over his life to any outside authority whatsoever and and i have sympathy with that you know who has sympathy with that jonah has sympathy with that because that was jonah's posture just a couple of days before but what we see here is that jonah is the new man and the reason that he's a new man the reason he has a new humility is that he has experienced in new ways both the power and the patience of God. Both the power and the patience of God. So first, pretty briefly, let's just talk about the power of God. And in order to understand the power of God, let's compare it a little bit with the kind of power that Jonah actually had in his society and his culture. So Jonah was a prophet of God, which meant that his voice in every aspect of is of the Israel culture uh, was one to be reckoned with. You had to listen to Jonah. Jonah uh, 
He was like E.F. Hutton, right? Now I'm dating myself. When Jonah spoke, people listened. And so whether it was in the spiritual realm, whether it was in the political realm, Jonah had uh, influence. He had authority. So Jonah uh, was a person of real power in the ecosystem of Israel. When Jonah spoke, people listened. Right? But what happened with Jonah? When he was confronted with the will of God and God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to this great city over here. And I want you to, uh, who is your actual mortal enemy. I want you to go over there and bring them into fellowship with me. I want you to preach against them. Jonah balks. And the reason he balks, the reason he rejects the, the, the word of the Lord is, is that he is filled with racial superiority and rage because of the relationship that Nineveh in the, the region of Assyria has had with Israel. And so he's blinded by those things. And because he's blinded by those things, he goes in the opposite direction of where God is calling him. Okay. But what happens? Jonah is confronted with a person with greater authority, who has dominion over a greater ecosystem, you might say, than Jonah can even remember. Jonah, uh, Jonah flees on the ship and Jonah hurls, or excuse me, God hurls a storm after Jonah, right? Uh, Jonah is on board with a crew and, and, and God utilizes that crew to, to confront Jonah of his, of his sin, shall we say, to convict Jonah, to care for Jonah. Uh, when he says, uh, when he has an opportunity to, to save the ship, uh, instead of repenting, he says, throw me into the water and it'll quiet this storm. And he's thrown into the water and he, he commits himself to death. And God, God appoints a great fish to come in to swoop him up and to save his life. So Jonah is confronted with a power greater than himself. And it's a power that is not uh, punitive in nature, but it's restorative in nature. See, the, the great miracle of this passage is not just that God uses this great fish, right, to get Jonah's attention. The miracle is that God will use anything in all of his creation, anything in all of his ecosystem to get a hold of us, to protect us, to return us to him. And that could be, you know, a great fish. It could be a pandemic. It could be your love for pastries, or it could be just to uh, use some alliteration, a pimple on your face. It could be anything. God wants to know he's pursuing you. He's after you. Not inherently to bring you punishment, but to re return you to him. And in so doing, return you to yourself. So he experiences the tremendous power of God, but he also experiences the wonderful patience of God. And those, that, is a, that is a powerful combination. The patience of God. What does it say? That the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. God, why does God use Jonah? We don't really know. He could use anybody. He doesn't just come to Jonah once and say, that's it, I'm done with him. No, Jonah is his prophet but he's also his project he's his, his progeny he loves him he cares for him he is he is intent on exercising his power through his patience and when you see somebody that you awe and, and admire and respect who treats you with patience that has a transformative effect on, on a person 
person. So you guys, if you know me, you know this story. But my father was a person that I had tremendous admiration for, respect for. I had a great relationship with my dad. My dad was also a person of real physical power. He was a big guy. He was an intimidating guy. Uh, he walked in a room, and if you didn't know him, you might think uh, trouble was brewing. Uh, that was not his heart at all. But uh, one time when I was at practice, uh, just to prove the point, a friend of mine saw my dad across the room, but he didn't realize he was my father. And he said, oh, my goodness, look at that guy over there. That's the meanest looking guy I've ever seen in my life. And I didn't even turn around because I just knew, oh, dad's here at my practice. And, of course, I did turn around, and there he was um, watching us play. And what's the point, right? The point is that here's two kids who are looking at the same thing, and one is a stranger and one's a son. And the stranger just looks at this intimidating figure and all he can see is the power. And all he can imagine is that that power were to tell him to do something, he would probably do it out of fear. But the son looks at that, son looked at that figure in a very different way. He doesn't ignore the power, he sees it too. But he also remembers how that father gets up every day and sacrifices for his family how that father doted on his, his children how that father uh, was faithful to his wife so on and so forth and it also remembers that how time after time after time that great power was often incredibly tender and patient with their boy with his sons and so that has a transformative effect on a person, both power and patience. So Jonah knew both the power and the patience of God. And I would say that if you're a person of faith, then you probably have to recognize yourself in the story too. Because how many times has the word of the Lord come to you and directed you in a particular way? And you fled. I fled. It's not just once, it's not just twice. It's dozens of times. It's 13, uh, you know, uh, 113, where we hear the word of the Lord, and yet the Lord is so patient. You know, there's a reason that Jesus says that you're going to forgive your enemy 70 times 7. Because he's speaking from personal experience. His heart is for, towards forgiveness, right? His heart, you know, the heart of God is one of mercy and tenderness. He's both powerful, but he exercises tremendous patience for his children. And Jonah experiences that. But you know what comes out of that? Is that when Jonah hears the word of the Lord, and he receives it, and he submits to it, he's brought into an incredibly privileged place. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the two verses, you know, they're almost, almost identical, but they're not. The, in chapter one, it says that the word of the Lord came to Joseph, son of Amittai, said, go to Nineveh to speak evil against that great city. That's in chapter one. In chapter two, it says the word of the Lord came to, came to Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them the message I tell you. And what scholars uh, talk about is, you know, why, why the change in the message? And I think this is what he's simply saying. He's saying the word of the Lord has come to you. You've been humbled by it. You've received it, and now I'm calling you into total obedience. Go there, 
and know that I'll be there too. And when you're there, I'll tell you what to say. I was there with you on the ship. I was there with you in that fish. I was there when you, with you when you were vomited onto the beach. I'll be there with you when you go to Nineveh. And that's an incredibly privileged place to be. Because submitting to the word of the Lord seems so scary. And oftentimes it is very scary. Because you don't know what's going to happen. But there's a joy. There's a joy in that obedience that says, you'll be with me. No matter what. Even if I'm called into something like Nineveh. So, how did Jonah become a new Jonah? By the power of God. By the patience of God. And he basked in the privilege of that relationship. Second, how did Nineveh become a new Nineveh? Nineveh was quite a city. It was a great city for a couple of different reasons. It was great in its cultural output. It was also a great city in its violence and its evil. Um, it was an epicenter of, of, of commerce, culture, um, but it was also incredibly brutal and barbaric uh, to the surrounding nations. And, and Israel was never overthrown by, um, by Assyria, uh, and Nineveh being the capital city of Assyria, but it, it came pretty close. And so we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago that Jonah would have experienced the pain. Uh, he would have known uh, people that had emotional and physical scars at the hands of Ninevites. So he would have known that. And, and therefore, Jonah, you know, what God is calling Jonah to do is a serious thing. It would be like it would be like a Jewish rabbi being told to go into Berlin during Nazi Germany and say, in 40 days, you better turn or in 40 days, the God is going to overthrow this. Or it'd be like, you know, uh, a, a black person walking into a giant uh, a, a diner and sitting at a counter in, you know, Jim Crow South. You're taking your life into your hands. That's what that's what Jonah is being asked to do, and he's being called to go. So it's not, and it's not for the faint of heart. What is he called to? He's just called to go and deliver a very clear and simple message. And the message is simply this: In forty days, turn, or the or the Lord will overthrow you. And what happens after that? What happens is what every preacher in the world wishes would happen. Immediately, they believe God. They believe God. See, this story is not just about one big fish miracle, but it is about a series of incredible acts of God and the turning of an entire city, a revival. I think is actually even a bigger deal than a fish swallowing a human being. An entire city uh, turns to God. Now, what is a revival? A revival is a historical event in which by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, hundreds if not thousands of people become converted to Jesus Christ. And that happens throughout history. It's happened in American history. It happens in global history. Uh, you can go look at it online. You know, you can bring all your questions. But that is a historical reality uh, that revivals happen in the church, that God brings people en masse to faith in incredibly supernatural ways. Miracles. So you see some of the marks of revival here. What, what does it say? It says, from the greatest to the least of them all repented. The greatest to the least of them. That means both young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. 
all the things that would naturally divide a community because of this revival, they were united in their repentance. Every person knew humility and a desire to change. They knew that they needed to be something different. They needed to be selfless, not selfish. They knew that they'd never experienced anything like this before, that they needed to turn from their wicked ways. Now, how different is that from our culture, right? Not that I don't think people recognize that there's a sense that they're off, that there's maybe they wouldn't maybe necessarily call it evil, but there's we're not what we are. We're not how we would like to be, right? But our tendency is to say, point to others first rather than to ourselves. And just say, if they would just straighten out, then I'll straighten out. That is not what is happening here. From the least to the greatest, they repented. And they, and they fasted, it said. Now, what does it mean to fast? To fast is to give up things, right? To give up securities, to give up comforts, to give up those things that, that make you feel like, uh, that make you feel secure. And so to fast is to say, I want to experience the reality of my life, which is that I'm actually far more helpless than I actually care to admit. So to fast is to, to embrace that reality. And embracing that reality, it's actually making them more wise. It's actually making them more empathetic. They're more in touch with others. It actually makes them more in touch with the true state of things. Right? Jonah should have fasted. Right? Because he actually thought that his power, his authority was commensurate with God's, but of course it's foolish. So they fasted, let them to give them wisdom to know that they're uh, to bring them more in touch with themselves, with God, and with the state of the reality around them. They recognized their own evil and their systems of violence. That was a mark of this revival. They were more concerned about the ways that they adversely affected others than how they were adversely affected themselves. They focused on their own cultural contributions while ignoring, uh, excuse me. Uh, Instead of focusing on their own cultural contributions, they put time and attention on their own failures, meaning they were not, they were most concerned about how they as individuals and they as a culture contributed to systemic injustice and evil in the world. And that has to be true. And I'm not just importing that because I think that's a conversation, obviously, in our time. I'm saying that because from the least to the greatest, young and old said, we're a violent society. We're an evil society. Now, how can the youngest person, how can a, a you know a, a middle schooler, cop to that? Because they realize that they're part of a system of violence. They realize that they are a part of systemic evil in the world. Uh, next, revivals are grassroots movements. This was a grassroots movement. It started with the people because God always goes to the people. And as in this grassroots movement, all the talk, all the chatter, all the change began to rise up to the surface. And, you know, it reminds me of uh, what they say about Constantine. You know, when Constantine uh, made uh, Christendom, right, when he declared Christendom, people say, oh, he became a Christian. And he wanted that to be the case. We really don't know for sure. But one of the theories is that, that Constantine saw what was already happening in the culture that a revival was going on, that times were changing. And in order to stay, stay with the times and to stay in power, he got behind the, the winning horse, essentially. 
And so in some sense, I don't think that's actually happening here. I think there's a true conversion with this king because the language that's used around this king, when it gets to him, is the same language that's used for Jonah. Isn't that amazing? Jonah's enemy is now responding to Jonah's God. What does it say? It says the king arose. He arose. He got up. He responded to the Lord. And what I love the most about this is that they recognize in themselves a need to repent. They recognize in themselves that uh, by being obedient to God, which is a form of death, that out of that death will come life, though they don't know how. He even says, um, maybe God will, will spare us. Who knows? But what I see now is better than the way that we're actually living. And I trust that this God is good. And I want to live like this because this is how I'm actually called to truly live. And I trust in the mercy of this God. But whether he saves us or not, this is how humans are supposed to thrive. This is how humans are supposed to live. So let me ask, could you imagine that happening in Nazi Germany? Could you imagine that happening in, in the American South? Could you imagine that happening in America today? Revivals are so beautiful. They're so hopeful. And they're really hard. You know, all the theologians say, people pray for revivals all the time, but you better be careful what you wish for. Because in times of revival, in times of repentance, people reevaluate their lives, they reevaluate cultures in dramatic ways, and it means everybody's going to change. And Christians should be at the forefront of that saying, I'm willing to change. Help me. Show me how. I believe God is good, and I want to follow him in that. So the revival here is absolutely beautiful. And what God does in just a couple of sermons through Jonah is more than all the billionaires in Nineveh could have ever come up with on their own. And a few couple of sermons by the power of God could be true in any culture at any time and place. You know, if we were to gather all of our resources, we can do a lot of good. The miracle here is that just through some simple sermons, almost instantaneously, in a matter of hours, things, the whole culture changes. And I don't mean this in a self-serving way. How, how important is coming to church? <laughs> if that's true, how important is it to come to church? But also, how is it important, how important is to know why you're coming to church? Or why do we listen to anybody? Whether it's a TED Talk or going to a Barnes & Noble and reading out of self-help or self-improvement or reading out of the Bible, who are you listening for? See, it says that they heard Jonah and they believed in God, not Jonah. Now, what's happening there? It's not that they didn't reject, they didn't reject Jonah, but what they heard was God through Jonah, around Jonah. But they didn't just hear Jonah, Jonah or hear God vocally shall we say. They saw God through the life of Jonah. See, Jonah is a prophet. He's a truth teller in the culture. But there's something powerful, and there's something powerful about that. There's something extraordinarily transformative, powerful, extraordinarily transformatively powerful in a prophet who is a repentant prophet. See, he wasn't barred from uh, preaching because he had to repent. It was actually his repentance that had made him every 
bit more effectual in his preaching. So they saw not just his, they just heard, didn't just hear the words of that, but they saw a life of somebody who has been changed. Jonah was a new Jonah because death, because out of his spiritual death came life. Nineveh was a new Nineveh because out of their spiritual death came a new life. And of course, that poses the question for, for us. What does it look like for us to be a new us? Well, I think the first thing we have to ask is, what does it look like to actually believe? Because they believed God, not Jonah, per se, right? What does it mean to believe? Believing is more than a feeling. It means actions and changed behavior. And I need to hear this more than anybody in this room. Believing is more than a feeling. It's, it's actions and changed behaviors. See, their beliefs were so new that they didn't even know where to begin their repentance. Uh, they began to demonstrate on the outside of their bodies what they felt like in their souls. So what did they do? They put on the most modest, abrasive of clothing, sackcloth. And then they took ash and they put it all over their body. Why? Because there's nothing like ash in all of ancient literature that says you are finite. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, to dust you'll return. And so they took what they knew was true of them on the inside in their soul, and they wore it on the outside. See, there was a, a visible action. So their first response was not a feeling. Uh, Eugene Peterson says this. He says uh, about, repeat, about uh, repentance. He says, it's not a word or a feeling at all, but a word of action, repentance. Under the influence of the prophets, repentance became not something you felt, but something you did. And it's essential you get that through your head. <laughs> this, is, this is Peterson saying. It's essential that you get that through your head if you're going to understand what the Bible means about repentance. You don't repent by taking a deep breath and then feel better. You repent only when you turn around and go back, go back or toward God. It doesn't make any difference how you feel. You can have the feeling or you don't have to have the feeling. What's essential is that you do something. The call to repentance is not a call to feel the remorse of your sins. It's a call to turn around so that God can do something about them. So maybe we have that feeling. Maybe we know that we need to do something. But does that bring about a new us? Not necessarily. Because uh, Jonah's problems are our problems. Nineveh's problems are our problems too. Right? But what, who's our Jonah? Where do we look to for Jonah? You know, is it in the TED Talks? Is it in the billionaires? Is it where, where is our Jonah? But, you know, the New Testament says we do have a Jonah. It says Jesus Christ claims to be the greater Jonah. He takes that name upon himself. And there's a, a section in both Mark and Luke, excuse me, Matthew and Luke, where Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees. And they have been listening to him, and they've been watching him. And unlike Jonah to the Ninevites, these Pharisees hear and see Jesus, both in his posture and his words, but they don't believe him. They don't believe God, which is interesting for us to consider. But he says, so that what they say is, well, show us a sign. Give us greater evidence of who you are. And so he says, probably... 
the most self-sacrificing of signs that you could possibly imagine. At the height of his ministry, Jesus says, I'll show you a sign. And he talks about the story of Jonah. And he says, you know, Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. My sign is this. I'm going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And their jaw was to hit the floor. Because they know the story of Jonah. Because Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. But he didn't stay there. He was resurrected. And Jesus is, is saying, watch, watch me sacrifice my life in obedience to God so that life can come out of my death when I'm resurrected. The way to a new us, Jesus would say, is through his death and his resurrection. See, that's why he says, I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I, uh, nobody comes to the Father but through me. In my death, in my resurrection, I am making all things new. I'm going to bring about a new you. I'm going to bring about a new everything. That's how we get to be a new us. Through Jesus. Jesus, uh, you know, just to prove the point, this is not just a, a you know, like a unique little section of, of scriptures. You know, this is a theme that runs all throughout scriptures that through through death comes life. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Such is the life of Christ. Such is the life of somebody who is in Christ. Um, the Bible is full of stories, uh, miraculous stories, but there's none that's more miraculous than Jesus. And the whole point of the Bible is not for us to get lost in the historicity of a fish, but Jesus believed that to actually be true. But the whole point of the Bible is to get lost in the power and the patience and the love of God that's embodied in Jesus Christ. And Christians are called to not only be obedient to God in every way of their lives, every way that you and I, that I feel uncomfortable, he's called me to be obedient to him. But in that, what he promises is that you will feel uncomfortable, but others will feel blessed. I pray that, that this church is like that. If we are not, we'll just repent. We'll just repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. And I thank you that in looking at something so simple, that the profundity of your love and your presence actually is made manifest. And I pray, Lord, that whenever anybody speaks at Storefront Church, that they would believe you. You are what's beautiful. You are what's important. Um, Lord, would you, would you do that through this ministry? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.